And now here in Romans 7, beginning in verse 1, he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress, If she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in the fifth stage of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, there is an account of Christian, and you know this story well. Christian is fleeing the city of destruction. He is making his way to the celestial city, and As he goes further and further along in his journey, he meets a variety of different individuals who themselves have met other people in that journey. And some of those people have helped them along in their journey, and others have been a detriment to them in their journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. We have heard in weeks past how Christian has met with Mr. Morality and Mr. Legality, who told him there was another way to go. He didn't have to go to the cross. There was a, there was a way by which he could have worked his way. And, and we've seen how, how Christian has felt himself crushed under the weight of that, that, that counsel and that, that other way of salvation. And as, as Christian makes his way along in the, the fifth stage in his journey, he meets a man named Faithful. And Faithful has been, as his name indicates, Faithful. He has gone before Christian, and they have met up in that journey, and they have begun to talk about what Faithful experienced as he went along, and Christian talking about what he had experienced. And as they they sat and they discussed the different people they met and the different things that had happened to them, Christian um, is listening to Faithful, and Faithful tells him, that there was a man who had overtaken him as he was going to the cross. And, and Faithful says, that man overtook me, and he spoke a word and gave me a blow. He knocked me down and laid me down for dead. And Faithful said, but when I rose again and came to myself, I asked him, why did you do that to me? And he said, because of my secret inclining to the first Adam. And then he struck me again, Faithful said. Another deadly blow. He beat me down. I fell. I laid his foot as dead. And when I came to myself again, I cried to him for mercy. But he said, I know no mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. And when Christian asks him who he is, he tells him it was Moses. 
that as, as faithful was making his journey to the cross, there was the law, and it was pursuing him. It was the law in its bare form. It was its law in its dominion over us by nature. It was the law as it was given to Adam, and, and the law that keeps all men by nature. It was the moral law of God pursuing him, knocking him down, striking him as if he was dead. And he was getting up and Christian says to him, well, how did you get away from this man? How did you, how did you survive all of his blows? And he said, I saw another man up on the hill and his hands were pierced and his feet were pierced. And I recognized him and he said, come up here. And I went to him. It's a beautiful picture of the way the law and the gospel are meant to work together Not just before conversion, but understanding its nature after conversion. Now, I tell you that because there is almost nothing more difficult um, in all of theology than really understanding the relationship between the law and the gospel. Jonathan Edwards said there is nothing more challenging in all of divinity than to come to understand the exact relationship between the law and the gospel. John Newton the great pastor of the 18th century in England, and in one of his letters, explains that, that every grave error in theology, in some way or another, has to do with the relationship of the law to us. The relationship of the law to men. Now, now Paul has sort of already taken this up. He's already entered in to explain that we're not under the law, we're under grace. Notice back in chapter 6, verse 14. Notice this, Paul says, he says in 6.14, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That begins this final leg, this final section into the section we're looking at this morning. And... Paul is intent in this section to explain to us several things. First, he is seeking to defend the relationship between the believer and the law of God and the freedom that we have from the law of God, but he is also defending the continuing and abiding significance of the law of God. It's very interesting. Paul is sort of doing two things at once. Now, as we look at these six verses, I want us to consider three things this morning. First, the proposition in verse 1, and then the illustration in verses 2 through 4, and then in the final verses, the implications, the proposition, the illustration, and the implications. Well, notice there in chapter 7, verse 1, he turns now, and, and we're not entirely sure who he is addressing. He says, he says do you not know brothers? Now, Clearly, he's writing to professing believers in the church in Rome. He's addressing them as brothers. He's addressing them as those who have made a a profession of faith in Jesus. They have bound themselves to other believers. They are part of the church. But then notice, notice the little parenthetical statement. He said, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, you know this, every New Testament church was made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. A lot of those believing Gentiles had been men and women and their families that had bound themselves to the worship of God in synagogues in these foreign lands. They had been sort of half-converts 
They were like Cornelius in the book of Acts. They, were, they, they wanted to worship the true God, but they had not yet heard the gospel. The apostles had brought the gospel to them. They had heard about Christ. They had turned fully to God through Christ, and they had bound themselves to the church. They had pulled away from that synagogue worship. It's, it's possible that when Paul says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that he's talking to that myriad of of Roman believers who had once been going to the synagogue. They had heard the law taught. They had some familiarity with it. It's, it's also possible that he's speaking to former Jews who had been converted to saving faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, in the same church. But he recognizes that there are people that knew the law. They understood what Moses had taught. They were familiar with the first five books of the Old Testament. They knew, they knew the moral law. They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew some of the ceremonial laws and some of the civil laws. And so Paul is saying, listen, I am, I'm, I'm now wanting to address those of you who are familiar with the Mosaic law, and, and I think specifically with the Ten Commandments. I think Paul is sort of moving to that focus on the Ten Commandments, and he says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, that's the proposition. Um, the moral law of God only has dominion over human beings as long as we're alive. That means it's not, it's not, it doesn't have dominion over people for eternity. It serves a purpose. It runs its course. When someone dies, the law no longer has dominion over them. Um, now, this is important because there are myriads of evangelicals who have essentially told millions of Christians in the New Covenant there's no more law at all. Law is bad. Christ is good. Law is evil. God did away with the law. There's no law. And, and Paul is going to dispel that notion in many ways throughout this epistle. He did it back in chapter 3 where he says, do we set aside the law because righteousness comes apart from it? No, we establish it. So um, Paul is going to uphold the fact that the law still has a place in human history, even now in the New Covenant era. And that place is that over a man or a woman by nature, in Adam, the law is our keeper. It has, it, it's the, it has a dominion over us. Um, it's interesting when we come to the implications, we're going to see how Paul sort of weaves this back into what he says in chapter 6 and back all the way even to chapter 5. You'll remember back in chapter 5 he says that all men are either in Adam or they're in Christ. Every one of you is united to Adam or united to Christ. And if you're united to Christ, Paul will go on to say that, that sin and death have spread from him to us, and that, that sin had a dominion over us. And then in chapter 6, he will say that sin and death reigned over all men by nature. And now in chapter 7, he will say the law reigned over all men by nature. You see, it's, it's a big package deal. Adam, sin, death, the law reigns over all men by nature. Now, you might ask the question, how does the law 
rule over the natural man by nature? What? How does it rule over us? Well, very simply, God wrote his law. Paul tells us in Romans 2, he wrote his law on the hearts of all men. The Ten Commandments were written on the heart of Adam. And they were bound up in the one commandment, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you may ask the question, how how was the moral law, the Ten Commandments, bound up with that one commandment? Well, I think I've told you this. If Adam had decided to cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not eat its root, but cut it down, carve an idol, bow down and worship it, it would have been idolatry. It would have been a violation of the first, first commandment. If Adam had decided to cut the tree down, make a bat, and murder Eve, that would have been a violation of the sixth commandment. See, free from the law of God. In fact, God had given him in that one commandment the totality of the moral commands that he would test him by, and, and if Adam had obeyed, he would have gained life for himself and all of us. That's what theologians in the Reformed tradition call the covenant of works. God entered into a covenant of works. He promised eternal life. He, he threatened eternal death. He gave that one command in which all the commands and the, the perfect obedience that was required was placed on Adam. And, and we, know the, the tragic, we know the tragic story, the, the long, sad story, because Adam disobeyed and broke that one command and broke the covenant of works and broke the law of God. He brought down all the curses of God. But, but the law didn't pass away. That's why it resurfaces at Sinai. It doesn't pass away. All men are still held to that. Now, what does it mean? Notice this. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. What does he mean it's binding? Well, that means that the moment someone is born into this world, by nature, in Adam, he or she is still under the demands to render perfect, personal, and continual obedience to the law. Those never go away. Because for those to go away, God would have to become unholy and unjust. For that demand to go away that God requires of all men to render perfect obedience, God would have to himself become imperfect. But because God is infinitely holy, his law still demands that of all people through all time. Now this is so vital because this is at the very heart of the Reformation. This is at the very heart of of what the Apostle says back in chapters 3, 4, and 5, Why we need another righteousness, because we can't keep God's law. Not not perfectly, not at all. Um, We we have transgressed God's commandments so many times, in so many ways and thoughts, words, and actions, our entire life. Um, On Judgment Day, you're going to see hundreds of millions of offenses that you committed to the law of God. And, and, And people that love their own righteousness hate to hear this, but it's true. It's true. David says, my transgressions are more than the hairs of my head in multitude. Now, some of you don't have a lot of hair left, but you did. Others have a whole lot of crazy amount of hair, but you get David's point. It's more than can be numbered. Um, the Roman Catholic Church hated this. They hated the thought that men couldn't do something to render obedience to God's law. Um, and this is, 
essential that Paul's not saying it's possible to keep the commandments by nature. He's saying they still have rule and dominion over all people, and it's a crushing thing. Um, Faithful, as he's trying to get to the cross, is constantly knocked down by the law. I don't know if I've told you this. I remember I was 24 years old when I was converted, and even though all of the Ten Commandments should have done this, there was one commandment in particular that I was violating constantly in my lifestyle. And it was, you shall not commit adultery. And, and it just, the Holy Spirit started making it just crash down on my conscience. Condemned, 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 condemned. And that's what it's supposed to do. That's the way it's supposed to work. Um, like faithful, it's, it's not to help you up and help you on your way to do a good job. It knocks you down. It says, there is no mercy in me. There's no mercy in the Ten Commandments. I know there was a sacrificial system in the Mosaic Covenant. I know that. Paul is talking about the law in its bare form. There is no mercy in the law. The law is good. It is not merciful. The law cannot get you to glory. It cannot help you establish righteousness. The law, Paul will say, is a ministry of death and condemnation. That's Paul. That's not me. That's not some theologian you don't like to hear about. That's Paul. A ministry of death and condemnation. When, when the apostle Peter talks about being set free from the law in Christ, he says to the Jews, this, the law was a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers could bear. A yoke of bondage. Um, the apostle Paul felt this. He felt this because he thought he was rendering obedience to God's commands, but he realized it was just making his sin exceedingly sinful. Notice how Paul actually talks about this. Notice verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, that means when we were unregenerate, we were not brought to spiritual life, we were just living dead in sins, our sinful passions aroused by the law, Listen carefully. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, before we were in Christ, when we were in Adam, when we heard things like, you shall not commit adultery, it made us want to go and do it more. You say, no, I don't believe that. It's God's law. It doesn't do that. Well, Paul says it does, so that would be wrong. But, but if any of you have had children, you know when you tell your children, hey, don't touch that, What's the first thing they want to do? Touch that. Why? Because the law stirs up sin. The law, through the flesh, exacerbates sin. It doesn't make us live righteous, holy lives. And it ultimately bears fruit to death. So the law is holding us captive. We're enslaved to our own sin. And the demands of the law make us want to sin more. That's what Paul's saying. The demands of the law make us want to sin more by nature. I hate that. I want to go here. Well, you want to go here because of the dominion of this over us. Now, we've got to come to terms with that. Because if we're going to understand what Paul's saying here about the freedom and the liberty and the fruitfulness that we have in Christ, and the freedom we have from the law, we have to understand first that we're under the law throughout the totality of our life and that until we die, or the husband dies in the illustration he uses, we, we can't be set free. Now, Paul now moves 
to this really wonderful illustration here in verse 2. Notice he now picks up on the illustration of a married woman bound by law to her husband. If you were with us over the past several weeks, you've seen that Paul used the illustration of slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to God. Two different masters. Now he moves on to another illustration, a sweeter illustration. And it's the illustration of marriage. And essentially he's saying, by nature, in Adam, we are married to the law, and, and it's, a, it's a stern and severe husband over us. And you might think a wife who is rebellious, and the way that her husband tries to restrain her is he puts the clamp down on her. He becomes heavy-handed. He rules over her. He makes sure she's not going anywhere. He watches everything she does. And she feels oppressed because she wants to rebel. That's, that's the idea Paul is presenting of the marriage between us and the law of God by nature. We are like that rebellious wife, but we are married to this severe husband. And Paul says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, as long as the husband's alive. Essentially, the husband is the law here. As long as the law continues, we are bound in marriage to that. We can't break free. We can't run away. We can't find immunity somewhere from that law. We are, there's an indissoluble bond, just as there is in marriage. There is that covenant. The two shall become one flesh. And as Jesus said, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. That's the law and us by nature. That's, that's the marriage. But then notice, Paul says, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, Paul is not giving us a total biblical theology of marriage here. There are three exceptions to every marriage. That is death, adultery, or abandonment. Abandonment is is a husband failing to... Um, fulfill his marriage covenant um, and, and rejecting his duties constantly in an exacerbated way or in moving and fleeing himself. There are three exceptions. Paul is not giving us a total comprehensive theology of marriage, but what he is telling us here is that marriage in its purest form is that covenant relationship that ought not to be broken apart. God said, I hate divorce. That's in scripture. I, the Lord, hate divorce. Um, It is the most sacred union. Now, if the husband dies, the wife is free to marry another. Now, we may be saying, well, that sounds good. Are you going to tell us the law died? No. If you took the analogy and you looked at it, the implication would be, well, the law has to die if I'm going to be free to marry someone else. But the law can't die because God is eternally holy and righteous. And so Paul does something brilliant, genius. Paul turns the analogy now. He says, if her husband dies, she's free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. But then notice verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died. This is so brilliant. The law is the husband. If, if the husband dies, the wife is free. But the law can't die. But Paul says, you died. You died. Notice this. To the law, through the body of Christ, 
so that you might belong to another. Now, these are some verses that don't get enough airtime in Christian preaching. And this is one of the most marvelous things Paul says in this book. And that is that though you were once married to and in bondage to the domination of the law of God, making your sin exceedingly sinful and keeping you in the flesh, in the death of Jesus, Jesus taking all of your sin, taking the wrath that you deserve, breaking the power of sin, breaking the dominion of sin, and you dying in union with him when he died, you died to that old marriage to the law. That's awesome. When Christ died, we died with him, and we died to the old indissoluble bond that we had between our sinful souls and the law of God. And he raised us up, not to let us be widows the rest of our life, but notice what Paul says. He says, but that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now this is awesome. Everybody in this room is married to someone. You are either married to the law of God in Adam, and all of the condemnation that comes with that, all of the exacerbation of sin that comes with that, or you are married to another, to him who died and was raised from the dead, who wants to make you fruitful. Now what Paul is doing is he's picking up on that theme that he loves so much of Christ as the heavenly bridegroom of believers. One of the best ways we can think about our relationship to God in Christ is that if we died with Christ, if we were raised with him, he has wed us to himself and made us his bride. As the church, Paul will say in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jonathan Edwards has put it this way, and maybe I've said this to you, why did God create the world? That he might get a bride for his son. That he might get a bride for his son. Um, There is all this glorious imagery in the scriptures. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the bridegroom has the bride. He knows that this is the bridegroom of the souls of his people. And and Jesus stands at the beginning of redemptive history and fulfillment of all things, his first miracle at, at the wedding of Cana. Here's the bridegroom. We don't even know who's getting married. All eyes are on Jesus. Here's the heavenly bridegroom. In the book of Revelation, there is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And everything is couched in terms of Jesus being the lover of the souls of his people who frees us from our old marriage to the law and sin and death and condemnation in the flesh, in Adam, to himself, to life and righteousness and grace and and freedom and fruitfulness. There are two husbands, the law and Christ. As faithful was helped finally on his way, not by the law helping him on his way, but by seeing another at the top of the hill holding out his pierced hands and feet and wearing a crown of thorns saying, come up here to me. In the same way in the gospel, Christ calls us to him and he he hushes the terror of the law for believers. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is emphatic. There is I love the way our Westminster Larger Catechism, question 97, puts it, that that the, the regenerate, those who have been born again, those who are united to Christ, that the regenerate 
are neither justified nor condemned by the law. You're neither justified nor condemned by it. It has no place in your justification or condemnation because you've been married to another. You've died with him. You've been set free from that old marriage. You've been raised with him. I love this imagery because I think Paul is doing something marvelous here. I think he's actually tying everything in these six verses back to what he says at the end of chapter 5, where he talked about the Adam-Christ parallel. Remember that. Death in Adam, life in Christ. The many were made sinners in Adam. The many are made righteous in the last Adam, the last man. A beautiful structural principle, Adam and Christ. Listen to this. Matthew Henry said, Adam was a type of him who was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death on the cross, in which his side was opened and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. Isn't that amazing? Just as God put Adam to sleep and pierced his side and brought him a wife, and woke him and presented her to him. So Christ was put to sleep on the cross. His side was pierced. His bride was purchased. And when he rose, she was essentially presented to him as the church he had atoned for. That's amazing. That's amazing. Don't miss that. This is the last Adam who who weds us to himself, even as you were wed to the first Adam and to the law and to your sin and to death and condemnation. Now you're wed to a better Adam. The second and last Adam. You've been brought out of his pure side. You've been, you've been purchased with his blood. You've been washed by his spirit. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. As the sun, when it rises, comes forth like a bridegroom, gloriously adorned. So Christ, in his resurrection, entered his state of glory. After his suffering, he rose to shine forth in ineffable glory as the king of heaven and earth, that he might be a glorious bridegroom in whom his church might be unspeakably happy. Listen, this is meant to arouse in you a desire for the Lord Jesus. That, you, that there's a better bridegroom. You are married to either the law or to Christ. No, no one is exempt. You are either still wed to the law and its condemning power, or you're wed to the Lord Jesus who has risen and who has set you free. Now, it's very interesting what Paul is doing in these six verses, and we're going to come here to look at the implications. We've seen the proposition, the illustration, and now the implications. As he is still addressing the issue of the believer being made fruitful. Um, remember back in chapter 6, he said, How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? But that we've been made slaves of God. We have our fruit unto holiness. So, We belong to different masters. Now he says we belong to different husbands. And it's very interesting. You know, when God brought together our first parents in the first marriage, the first thing he said to them after joining them together was, be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. I think Paul is is teasing out that that idea here. He says, he essentially says in, in verse For you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit unto God. How am I going to be fruitful? Well, thinking about 
My desire to strictly obey the law is not what makes me fruitful. Being married to Christ is what makes me fruitful. Now, the law has a role in the believer's life, but it doesn't make you fruitful. Christ, in the gospel, and us united to him makes us fruitful. You'll remember how Jesus says this in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Everyone that abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. He makes us fruitful by his grace, through his redeeming work, by virtue of what he does at the cross. You know, the people I know that talk about the law the most are the most miserable people I know. I'm just going to tell you that right now. The people that talk most about the law of God and least about the gospel are the most miserable, joyless, grumpy, critical, judgmental people I know. And the people that reflect on the eternal, dying, rising love of the heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, are the most joyful, peaceful, encouraging people I know. Because that's part of the fruit that he produces. Remember when Paul will talk about the fruit of the Spirit, he says it's love and joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness. It's not legal severity to minutia. It's, it's those, those glorious things that belong to Christ, the love of God, the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. He says, abide in my love. He says, abide in my joy. You see, these are the marks of the fruit that he gives. Paul says, if you don't want to walk in the flesh and have the fruit of the flesh, all of the sin, then you need the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't say you need the law to bear that fruit. You need Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. Notice how he says it by implication. At the end of verse 6, he says so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. God wants us to so understand our union with Christ as the heavenly bridegroom of our souls, that we serve God in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Now this is liberating, because that makes me want to stay close to Christ. And if I'm going to stay close to Christ, I'm going to stay far from sin. And when I go to sin, I'm not close to Christ. When I've realized that I've been living in sin, I don't go to the law, I go back to Christ. I return like Gomer, Gomer to Hosea. The Lord says, return to me. Return to me. I'm, not your, I'm no longer your Baali, your master. You'll call me your husband. Your maker is your husband. The, the Lord of hosts is his name. Um, I like the way that John Calvin sort of summarizes what Paul is saying about the implications here. He says, before our will is formed according to the will of God by the Holy Spirit, we have a law, we have in the law nothing but an outward letter which bridles our external actions but does not restrain the fury of our lust." Paul ascribes newness to the spirit because it succeeds the old man as the letter is called old because it perishes through the regeneration of the spirit. 
You see what he's saying? He's saying there's newness in Christ. There's newness in the spirit. There's a victory over sin. There's, there is a running the path of God's commandments. There is, in a sense, the, the Ten Commandments become the sphere of our sanctification. They don't, they don't sanctify us. They become the boundary markers by which the spirit of God more and more helps us to move in fields of God's green pastures and, and paths of righteousness. Um, very interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in these six verses, just as almost entirely in the last chapter, Paul doesn't tell you one single thing that you're supposed to do. I want you to think about that. He doesn't tell you one single thing that you're supposed to do. He tells you what Christ has already done. Um, Too many Christians... Just want to be told, tell me something to do. Give me more application. I had a young man who was really into the law of God, and, and he said to me when he left the church, he sort of kicked me in the gut, and he said, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Christ in the gospel. I need more. That is a spirit that does not understand what the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying. I want you to get that if you have that spirit in you. That is antithetical to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, there is one who has set you free from the dominion of the law to bear fruit unto God. And if you are married to him, you are going to bear fruit. Not perfectly, but you have a bridegroom that is never going to leave you nor forsake you. You have one that will always receive you back. When you have tried to turn back to the law in your own flesh and you've walked in rebellion, he will always, always, always receive you. When we come this morning... To the table, I want you to see what is not there. None of the Ten Commandments are on this table. I want you to look at this. There is no law on this table. There are symbols of the bridegroom to whom we are now wed to. Whose side was pierced, who slept the sleep of death, and yet who, who purchased for himself a bride to set us free from the dominion that we were in under Adam, sin, death, our flesh and the law. I'm going to read you one more quote this morning. John Stott asked the question, is the law still binding on Christians? I mean, is, is there still a place for the law? He says yes and no. He says yes in the sense that Christian freedom is freedom to serve, not freedom from sin. But then he says, no, because the motives of our service have completely changed. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master, but because Christ is our husband. Not because the law is our master, but because Christ is our husband. We serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Now that is so liberating. Because you have a husband in the Lord Jesus who loves you more than you'll ever know, who did everything to purchase you as to be part of his bride, his church, for all of eternity, who is committed to making you fruitful in your lives, in this world, and who will love you to the end, and who, unlike the law, is not a harsh taskmaster, He is the sort of husband that 
every husband ought to aspire to be like. He loved his wife and gave himself for her. He sacrificed himself. He shed his blood. He washes her with the water of his word. He's tender to her. He's full of grace and truth. He is gentle and lowly. Listen, we don't have a hard Jesus. We sang this morning, we have a strong Jesus. We have a kind Christ. We have a kind, loving, merciful, gracious husband who loves his own who were in the world and he loves them to the end. He lays down his life for us, who freed us from the harsh dominion by wedding us to himself. I am going to make two applications this morning, though Paul made none. The first is that I want, to, I want to exhort you, if you belong to Christ, if you're trusting in him, that you would meditate often on the love of the heavenly bridegroom. We don't meditate enough on the fact that he's the lover of our souls, that he has purchased us to be his bride. If we thought of ourselves that way, we would be far more inclined to spend time with him. I know the older I get, I want to do less and less, and I want to spend more time with my wife because I love her. If you realize the love that Christ has for you, you'll want to spend more and more time with him. You'll want to be close to him. You'll want to walk in the ways that are pleasing to him and to his father. Um, We need to meditate on these truths often. If you have never come to Christ, I want to tell you, you are still wed to the law, and he is a hard husband, and he only keeps you in bondage to your sin until you die in Christ and are married to another. Um, If you will believe on the Lord Jesus, you will experience in time and space that death to the law and that life to Christ. God has promised that. That's what happens to every person who will believe on the Lord Jesus. You experience death to the law, life to Christ. Let him who has ears this morning hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for the all-glorious heavenly bridegroom, your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have freed us from the law, that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace to you in Christ. You have set us free from that to which we were held by, that you might make us fruitful in walking by the Spirit in newness of life. Our Father, would you remind us of that union that we have with our bridegroom Savior, the Lord Jesus. Would you remind us of his dying love as we prepare to come to the table? Would you remind us afresh of what he has done for us out of that great love with which he loved us? Father, we pray if there are any here this morning that are still in bondage to the law and union with Adam, would you set them free to be married to another, namely to him who was raised from the dead, that they may experience that newness of life. And so, Lord, would you accomplish these things among us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.